The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McCree from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today's topic is special autonomy and the overall Indonesian government approach to the Papua conflict. On 15 July, the Indonesian legislature, the DPR, revised special autonomy legislation for Papua and West Papua provinces, extending the provision of additional funds to these two regions. The extension of special autonomy, or OTSUS in Indonesian, has been hotly debated for 18 months, with many civil society groups and independent supporters in Papua rejecting special autonomy altogether. Special autonomy is one strand of the Indonesian government's attempts to address protracted conflict with segments of Papuan society, including armed independence groups such as the TPNPB, the armed wing of the Free Papua Movement. Another strand has been a security approach, including counterinsurgency operations, internet shutdowns, and the sometimes fatal repression of dissent and protests. To discuss the Indonesian government's approach to conflict in Papua, including special autonomy and this security approach, I recently spoke with Hippolytus Wange, a week before the special autonomy revisions were passed. Hippo is a researcher at the Australian National University who has written extensively on various dimensions of the Papua conflict. We'll include links in the episode notes. He was also a humanitarian volunteer in Papua in 2019, assisting displaced persons from Nduga in the Papuan Highlands. We of course discussed violence in Induga in a previous episode of Talking Indonesia with Dr. Jenny Munro in December 2018. Well worth another listen. Hippo, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Now it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, can I start? By asking you, we've seen a lot of debate of special autonomy for Papua over the past uh, 18 months to two years as the deadline for special autonomy funding comes up. I guess looking back over the two decades of special autonomy, what sort of impact has it had on the levels of conflict or support for independence we've seen in Papua? Generally speaking, outsource or spatial autonomy does not resolve the long-running conflict in Papua. Democracy itself, if we are taking a bigger picture, merely reduce violence in a few years, but doesn't thoroughly resolve the political conflict in the long run. I'm quoting a newly published book by Jacob Petrant, and he says, like, if you have this kind of political arrangement like spatial autonomy, it won't resolve the political conflict. So, in fact, in the past five years, Armed conflict has escalated in Central Highland and mountainous areas in Papua. And since 2005, the Papuans have rejected the conflict. The same also happened in 2010. And it was obvious during the 2019 anti-racism protest two years ago. And the Papuans chanted, Otsus has failed. The Papuan students and youth groups are in the front line to facilitate local aspirations of independence. But this kind of aspiration has been largely downplayed or rejected by Jakarta. So I will say over the past two years, OTSUS is not 
the genuine solution to resolve this long-running conflict in Indonesia's easternmost area. No, and I mean, it's interesting where you highlight the political conflict that Jakarta has neglected in its approach to Papua. Of course, we've seen at the other end of the archipelago in Aceh, special autonomy or self-government arrangements have succeeded in addressing separatist conflict there. And I know you've compared in a, in a recent article the divergent outcomes between special autonomy arrangements for Aceh and Papua. What is it about the Achenese special autonomy legislation or process that differs from Papua that meant it had more success in, in addressing political conflict there? In Aceh, the so-called special autonomy, particularly in 2006, included a wide variety of actors. So it's not only the elites took part in the process, but also civil society, including guerrilla fighters, the GAMP. The kind of inclusive process is the one missing from spatial autonomy or OTSUS in Papua. Ever since it was negotiated in November 2001, the nationalist groups, the ones who are aspiring for independence, they have been largely excluded from the process. And up until today, if you are looking at the recent initiative by the central government and the national parliament, DPR, they don't want to include this kind of a strong independent voice. You've mentioned there that the current autonomy legislation in Aceh was only enacted in 2006 um, after the peace agreement between the government of Indonesia and the free Aceh movement GUM in 2005, um, whereas, of course, uh, special autonomy in Papua was negotiated earlier with the legislation uh, enacted in um, would have been 2000 or 2001. Um, you mentioned nationalist groups were excluded from those initial negotiations over special autonomy in Papua. What was the process at the time and, and how much say did Papuans have in the design of the current special autonomy arrangements? For Papua, I think they had a significant voice at the initial deliberation process back in 2001. In fact, Papuan coastal-based elites designed and wrote around 14 drafts before it narrowed to one final draft to be discussed in Jakarta. And the specific group that I mentioned uh, in Papua back in 2001, it was known as a Team 14, who took charge to deliberate the process. However, as happening today, the final deliberation is dominated by the national elites in Jakarta. There have been a series of meetings in the past six months since January, initiated by the DPR's special committee, but primarily involved government ministries and agencies, such as the National Intelligence Agency, uh, the police, the military, Supreme Audit Agency, and relevant ministries. Um, there are no crucial actors from, from Papua involved in that kind of meeting, such as the MRP, the Papua People's Council, the provincial parliaments, provincial governments, civil society groups, student organizations, and the church, or even the nationalist groups. And why do you think that is that the, um, the Indonesian parliament, the, the DPR, and those other central government agencies haven't included various Papuan institutions or community groups in their deliberations over whether to extend special autonomy funding? That's also a really a crucial question for many Papuans. I guess the answer for, for this is 
the national elites, either the legislative or the uh, executive government, they don't think, including these Papuans, who they sense have a strong independence aspiration as part of this uh, deliberative process. I did talk to one of the politicians in Jakarta, and I asked a very simple question is, where is the Papuans in this big process of renewal outsource? And he said that because they still got the sense like if the Papuans are involved in the process, they will propose a well-known aspiration of politics, of self-determination. So it is better to have, you know, a small cycle of actors in this uh, deliberative process instead of having more inclusive one. Now, I mean, focusing on Jakarta for a second, and you mentioned various agencies have decided to exclude Papuans from the conversation. What sort of debate is there over the future future of special autonomy in Jakarta itself? Are the parliament and various state agencies on the same page as to what sort of autonomy measures and funding should be offered or, or are there divides within Jakarta itself? From Jakarta's eyes or from Jakarta's perspective, they only want to renew or at least review two articles of, of OTSUS. They are article number 34 on OTSUS funds and number 76 on the creation of new administrative areas. So these two critical articles are less sensitive. So from Jakarta perspective, they only want to focus on welfare-based policies. They don't want to talk about uh, more kind of sensitive issues, for instance, like uh, political issues, historical part or uh, local political parties, or even Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Human Rights Court. These kind of elements, the ones that I just mentioned, are really critical parts from the perspective of Papuans. Because for the past 20 years, OTSUS doesn't want to touch upon these sensitive issues. So... Jakarta, particularly under Jokowi's administration, only wants to deal with less sensitive issues. In fact, Jokowi has issued a presidential regulation number 18, 2020, on the National Medium-Term Development Plan from 2020 to 2024. So basically, it includes national development strategies, general policies, priority projects, and one of them, one of them is located in in Papua. By Papua, I mean two provinces, Papua Barat and Papua province. And what are the details of that project in Papua? So basically, it includes, for instance, like a Trans-Papua Highway, you know, economic zones in Papua Barat province. They want to connect, you know, more location of economic projects. Of course, they want to increase more financial sources related with Mining sources, two of them are in Timika with the American mining company Freeport and the British Petroleum in Papua Bar province. So this, in general, I will say like it is a business as usual. They just want to focus on how to develop Papua in terms of economy, but they sideline or overlook the elephant in the room, which is the political issue. Now, I mean, it's interesting to hear you describe the Indonesian government as unwilling to address the political issue, because in the original special autonomy legislation, 
there were actually also some political measures. For instance, there was provision for the formation of local political parties, although that has never happened. There was also this consultative body, the MRP, formed in, in Papua, although the government has pushed ahead and taken steps like dividing the original Papua province into two, West Papua and Papua, without going through the mechanisms set out in that special autonomy legislation. I guess what changed between the enactment of special autonomy when there were at least some limited political measures and now this unwillingness to discuss political conflict on Jakarta's part? There is kind of a strong sense from Jakarta of not giving space for independence aspiration, uh, which I still think it is crucial driving force of whatever interference, whatever intervention or whatever projects applied in Papua. So from 2001 and up to 2021, I guess it is fair to say during this particular framework of OTSUS, there has been some sort of spaces for development, spaces for welfare programs. But on the other side, these kind of programs or development are not entirely for, for Papuans. Because if we go to some areas, particularly in Central Highland, the one that majority indigenous Papuans reside, we can still see like the locals do not get you know, significant progress in terms of how they they see uh, spatial autonomy or OTSUS. And even if you go to coastal areas in Jayapura, Mroke, Fafa, Kaimana, Yap and Biak, you can still get the picture like the ones who get much from the OTSUS is not Papuans. There are some Papuans, but basically they are the ones that have networked with non-Papuans in terms of how they run business or uh, the elites, bureaucrats, were working for provincial administration. I mean, you mentioned one of the features of the current autonomy legislation in Aceh was that the Free Aceh Movement GUM were ultimately able to participate in discussions around aut- autonomy and in negotiating um, the content of that legislation. Are there any circumstances under which you could imagine independence groups in Papua being involved in discussion of autonomy legislation? For the past two years, if we see the discourse of spatial autonomy, uh, since there are at least three big groups. The first group are the local elites who are in line with the central government to revise OTSUS and focus merely on increasing OTSUS funds and creating new provinces. The second group are the local members of provincial parliaments and the MRP, the Papuan People Assembly, who oppose the initiative from the national parliament and the central governments to renew OTSUS without consulting the Papuans. They ask for more full review of OTSUS. And the third one, the groups, they are the grassroots movement, nationalist groups, who without any doubt oppose OTSUS and ask for self-determination. So... The third group is the one who are advocating, who are facilitating the political aspiration from the locals. And I don't think, honestly speaking, I don't think these nationalist groups will be part or they will agree to be part of this deliberative process of the renewal of OTSUS. 
I guess to flip the question somewhat, uh, you know, I take your point that they have a clearly articulated desire for independence. If some representatives of those groups were willing to discuss autonomy, do you think the Indonesian government would be willing to talk with them? This is not a new concern for many Papuans if the Jakarta elite says or the, the central government wants to have the, the nationalist group to be part in this negotiation process or in the discussion of OTSUS. But for me, if we are looking at the, in the past 10 years, when the initiative comes from Jakarta, to some points it will fall short. I mean, there are some particular groups within the central government or within the national government who think by having negotiation with the nationalist groups, it will jeopardize the state ideology of Republic of Indonesia is undisputed or NKRI Hargamati. Basically, it's coming from, for instance, like from the military, which is, as, which is well known for their resistance towards this strong sense of independence. So if you ask, like, if Jakarta offers this one, the next question will be, is it truly that Jakarta wants to have this discussion or negotiation with nationalist groups. Because since 1999, with the case of East Timor, a strong sense of nationalist uh, perspective among central government is the one that, to some points, hampers the more inclusive discussion with nationalist groups in Papua. Certainly over the period that we've seen the central government working on an extension of special autonomy, we've also seen, I guess, an intense and prominent security approach from the Indonesian government towards those nationalist groups in Papua, including counterinsurgency operations in the Papuan highlands around Nduga, where, of course, there was the attack on workers building the Trans-Papua Highway in, in 2018, repression of, of protests across Papua, uh, including internet shutdowns, as, as well as cases against various activists. So on the one hand, you have this security approach. On the other hand, you have the government seeking to resolve the conflict through special autonomy. Is there any coordination between those two strands of, of attack from the Indonesian government? I assume there, there are always calculated moves by Jakarta before they implement a specific approach or specific coordination. But looking at the current situation in Central Highland of Papua, Jakarta still prefers adopting a security approach in the forms of, for instance, like military campaign, military deployment, or even internet shutdowns as the way to block, as you say, any initiative or any protest or any resistance towards the renewal of OTSUS. So if the question will be any coordination between this security approach and efforts by the Indonesian government to address the conflict through spatial autonomy, I will say, of course, there is a coordination. It is a calculated move. But the crucial concern is that whether this coordination will slow the conflict or increase or even prolong the kind of uh, resistance and uh, armed conflicts in, in Papua. When we talk about the impacts on the outcome and duration of conflict, of course, I believe you spent a long period of time 
in Induga itself in 2019. Can you describe what you observed there in terms of the, the sorts of counterinsurgency operations that were taking place and their impacts on the, on the conflict and the population? First of all, I have to clarify something. I was not in Duga at the time, back in 2019, but I helped and assisted thousands of displaced Duga in Jayawijaya and in Lanijaya. And I met hundreds of women and children, and I recorded all their kind of testimonies with their stories of what's really happening. And some of them even showed me the kind of footage, photos, videos, and explaining the context. Honestly speaking, as I wrote in Contemporary Southeast Asia, it was horrible, the condition back in 2018, late 2018, up to 2020. So I interviewed around 50 internally displaced people, along with three teachers from Duga. One basic thing that I found really interesting is that over the years, with this kind of spatial autonomy, fundings, programs, uh, the Dugas, displaced Duga, still feel they're not part of Indonesia. Because they say, like, the conflict itself, the armed conflict since the late 2018, they have been overlooked by the, by the governments. Governments, I mean, both provincial and central governments. They are living in, in very poor condition. They cannot return to Duga. And they see being part of Indonesia only prolongs what the so-called transgenerational trauma. Because this kind of trauma, this kind of conflict is, is not new for them. They have faced and they have struggled with this kind of conflicts between the state and the, the locals since 1960. 70s, 77, 78, and then it was back in 1996 when there was a famous operation called Mapenduma Operation, led by, at the time, Lieutenant Prabowo Subianto. And in the past four years, another conflict, which for them, the state doesn't care so much about their life. The government doesn't want to help them. So for me, this kind of condition only again, prolongs the kind of constrained relationship between Papuans and central government or Jakarta. So, I mean, when we talk about counterinsurgency operations in a Papuan context, what exact form do those operations take and who have they been targeting? For the past four years, if we are looking closely at the dynamic of the conflict in, in Papua, this so-called counterinsurgency operation to go after to arrest the TPMPB, the West Papuan Liberation Army. One of the main tactics is by targeting the locals using the so-called uh, racial profiling method. By this, I mean when the soldiers who are mostly coming from outside Papua, they don't have enough background to identify who are supporters who are parts of the armed groups. The way to address this incapacity to identify is by targeting the locals who they think are parts of the guerrilla fighters network. So by employing this so-called racial profiling, it only results in 
kind of resistance from the locals to this kind of military operation or counterinsurgency operation. And as we make an argument in our article on counterinsurgency operation in Duga, the main reason why the counterinsurgency operation is ineffective to arrest the TPNPB fighters is because the Indonesian security force cannot win hearts and minds of the locals. They do this kind of operation at the expense of the local interests. For instance, like by targeting the locals, torturing, even to some cases, killing the locals. It brings more kind of a strong resistance, anger or revenge from the locals towards the Indonesian security force. And at the end, it only brings more harm than good to the uh, indigenous people in Central Highland of Papua. How militarily capable is the target of these operations, the armed independence groups, and has that changed as a result of counterinsurgency operations? So if you are looking at the conflict dynamic in the past five years, the strength of the so-called TPNPB, they have quite sophisticated weaponaries. One of them, because they can buy these weapons and they can get from other sources, at the end it will support their military campaign against Indonesian security forces. But although the headquarters of the TPNPB says like they have over 30 military commands across Papua, but only six or seven that are active, that are running military campaign against the Indonesian military. And these five or seven groups scatter around Central Highland, for instance, like in in Duga, in Timika, in Tanjaya, Punchak, Lanijaya, and Paniai. And so this group conducts more independent campaign or independent attacks towards the uh, Indonesian security force. In fact, two days ago, July 6, 2021, there was intensive gunfights in Duga, Yal district. It wounded three Indonesian soldiers. It has been confirmed by the Indonesian military that the gunfight is still active in Duga. And if the armed group or the TPNPB still gets more support in terms of weapons, in terms of materials, they will have more capacity to prolong the conflict. And the armed conflict will go around for the next 20 or or 30 years. And the one thing that I want to emphasize about this conflict dynamic is that we have to keep in mind that the conflict itself has brought more children to be part of these uh, guerrilla fighters. I even interviewed one around 12 years old boy. He was in Jayawijaya, and he said that he wanted to become part of the guerrilla groups because he doesn't have any parents, he doesn't have any support. So he wants to join the fighters in the forest. And if we are looking at the local reports, humanitarian reports from Intanjaya or from Duga, we get confirmation that child soldiers have been around for the past four or five years. And this is the fact that has been denied several times by the central government. And this fact has to be addressed soon. Otherwise, it will create more trauma 
transgenerational trauma for indigenous people, and it will hamper their loyalty to Indonesia. Sure, sure. No, it's a very concerning dynamic. Uh, and I mean, still just focusing, focusing on this question of military capacity, um, just for a second, what sort of level of deaths are we seeing out of armed conflict in Papua over the last few years? About the consequences of the conflict, we have to understand that in this kind of long-running conflict, it's not only in one location. So it goes around in Central Highland in several regencies, as I mentioned, Duga, Timika, Punchak, Intanjaya. So from the data I received from the humanitarian organizations or the one that I collected from my fieldwork, I will say we have to divide between civilian casualties and combatant casualties, civilian or non-combatant. So for combatant casualties, we have to remind ourselves it is divided into the security force and also the uh, guerrilla fighters. For the Indonesian security force, there is no clear number of how many deaths, but the estimation is over 60 or 70 deaths and wounded officers per year. And for the TPMTP or guerrilla fighters, I will say still there is no exact number, but we can estimate probably around 30 or 40 died or wounded during the conflict in a year. And civilian casualties, if I will say, back in 2019, when I conducted my fieldwork in Jayawijaya, for, for the conflict of Duga, we have the number over 200 died of the conflict, both as impacted by the gunfights or those who die in refuge. So 200 only for Duga. But if you are looking at the past four or five years, I get the sense is those who died, probably over 500, because it's not only in one location, we have to count in several locations. So it is very difficult to record or to find a clear number of how many deaths and affected people uh, who suffered during the conflict. Because up until today, the central government doesn't want any humanitarian organization or even human rights commission to do this kind of reporting on affected people from the conflict. We've also earlier this year seen the Indonesian government designate various independence groups in Papua as terrorists following the killing of a representative of the state intelligence agency in Papua around that time. What do you see as the effects of, of that sort of designation? I will say about this terrorist labeling or the recent initiative to label the West Papuan National Liberation Army as terrorists only reflects unwillingness and no political commitment to resolve the conflict in a peaceful way. There are several elements that I will say. First of all, the terrorist labeling was not granted by the court as mandated by law number 5, 2018 on counter-terrorists. Second, there was little deliberation about the labeling. In fact, I was approached by the BNPT, National Counterterrorism Agency, officer, the other day, to be part of 
so-called deliberative process kind of a focus group discussion. They wanted to know more about what's really going on in Central Highland. But sadly, two days before the discussion, the agency canceled the kind of uh, FGD without saying the reason. A week after, the Chief Security and Political Minister Mahfoud MD officially announced the TPNPB and its affiliation, including student and youth groups aspiring independents, are terrorists. The labeling followed the killing of, as you mentioned, high-ranking military officer, uh, provincial intelligence chief, General Putu, one-star general. And this killing triggers more a repressive approach from the central government to deal with the conflict in Papua. And such labeling was rejected by the Papua governor, Lucas Anembe, and he even asked the central government to refuse such labeling because it will bring more harm than good to indigenous Papuans. The local newspapers and NGOs have reported massive displacement right after the Indonesian military continued airstrike and land attacks in Punjab Regency. So this kind of attacks or military campaign was conducted a few days after the central government announced TPNPB as a terrorist group. And the third one is such labeling merely shows the central government resistance to understand the root causes of the conflict. And as the status of Papuan conflict is unclear, whether a civilian emergency area, whether it is a military zone, the terrorist labeling is only a backdrop for more military deployment, the politicization of political movement, and legitimacy to employ a repressive approach to Papuans who are considered terrorists or part of the terrorist network in Papua. Are there any entry points that you see for an improvement in the situation and improvement in conflict dynamics in Papua over the next few years? Honestly speaking, if we are, we are talking about resolving the, uh, the Papua conflict during the remaining years of President Joko Widodo, I will say I don't think there will be such an improvement or there will be a significant change. I'm very pessimistic about the current administration deals with the problem. As I said, no political will to adopt alternative solutions. As Indonesia struggles with the pandemic, I don't think Jokowi will have the remaining resources or alternatives to resolve the conflict in Papua. In fact, during his administration, the arbitrary arrest, torture, killing, and demonstration increased. The armed conflict in Central Highland Papua has found no end in sight. And if the question, the next question will be a conflict resolution, many political analysis, many research, kind of the NGOs, the church have proposed a dialogue, a genuine dialogue between Jakarta and the nationalist group. The concept of dialogue itself has been discussed widely by Papuan civil society as the only instrument to resolve the conflict. Since the late 1990s, the idea of dialogue has taken several names, for instance, like Papua, the land of peace. Papua is not the empty land, and dialogue doesn't kill anyone. Such label want to ask conflicting parties to come to negotiation and put aside their narrow interests. Even there is a specific kind of organization called the Papua Peace Network, yet it does not have strong support by the conflicting parties. But for me personally, I will say before we have dialogue, Jakarta has to show strong political will to end the conflict. For instance, like they have to create peaceful conditions to build trust among Papuans to resolve the conflict. If the conflicting parties just propose a dialogue, 
or negotiation without a supportive environment, it won't bring about a peaceful talk. Back in 2001, when the spatial autonomy, the first OTSUS was designed, it was deliberated amidst high intensity of violence. And the second initiative to renew OTSUS in 2021 also happens during this current escalated violence, in, particularly in Central Highland of Papua. So if there will be some uh, so-called resolution, first of all, they have to show some strong and positive gesture to end the conflict, build trust among Papuans. For instance, like Jakarta can demilitarize uh, the area and uh, can, you know, establish, for instance, like uh, human rights court and try to resolve all the human rights cases from 2000s up to today. And they can ask the church, discuss with the church to have more positive uh, dialogue to end the conflict. Otherwise, we will see the next 20 or 30 years the same intensity of violence, the same intensity of demonstration, the same intensity of constrained relationship between the central government and Papuans. That's a very clear-eyed analysis of the conflict. There's a lot more I could ask you about this, but uh, I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with Talking Indonesia today. It's been great. Thanks again for having me, Dave. Really appreciate it. That was Hippolytus Wange, a researcher at the Australian National University and a humanitarian volunteer in Papua in 2019, assisting displaced persons from Nduga in the Papuan Highlands. Talki Indonesia returns on 29 July with my co-host Dr. Anissa Beta. Until then, you can access the entire archive for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talki Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.